Well, good morning. It's really wonderful to see everybody. Um, I have to, I first have to ask, uh, who gave me the present? Who gave me the present? Yes, yeah, okay, tell, tell all, Tim, where did you, tell me about this present. Well, you know, I started, I embarked on this reading, and that's the summary of it, I, I would definitely like a copy, and in fact, I'm going to ask you for the PDF if you have it, because it's really, it's very uh, succinct and very brief and very nice. So, oh, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Um, uh, Lama, um, uh, the Lama Wangdu left, uh, but um, what I can do is I can, t- I can send an email to Clark Johnson and ask him, because I know, I know the man who's the publisher. So... I know the man who's the public. It's seven-point mind training. Uh, so if you, if you pop me an email this week uh, to remind me, I'll, I'll write to Clark and get his permission. I'll need the, I'll need the PDF and a note, okay? All right. Yeah. Now, now you may say, uh, why am I getting so excited about one little uh, listing of uh, beautiful Buddhist sayings? It's because these sayings are life-changing. And to be able to make uh, these sayings available in a format that folks can read and uh, absorb and enjoy uh, and get something out of, it's really fantastic. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, last weekend I taught on uh, just a few of these slogans or these uh, Buddhist sayings, uh, which aim the mind toward compassionate action. And uh, so I taught on a few of those last week during the fall retreat, and I really appreciate Tim, uh, you putting together this uh, short, uh, this short piece. Uh, part of the reason is because I do intend on teaching a longer uh, session on this sometime during the next twelve months. What I'll be doing is giving everybody a copy of this, and then we'll be getting together probably once a week for about eight weeks. Uh, to study these uh, sayings and see uh, how they are life transforming. Uh, so, uh, if if you're interested, um, we'll uh, you can watch our newsletter because the newsletter will announce when we're going to do it. Um, the last time I taught on this text was about um, oh gosh, was it, it was when we were in the other building, and uh, if Michelle was here, she could tell me because uh, yeah, when was it, Michelle? 2014, yeah, because Michelle came to those lectures, and I think you were there for like every single one. Yeah, okay, yeah, so, and and what we ended up doing was we live-streamed it to uh, a a Buddhist congregation in uh, North Carolina, and they loved it. And it's still online in its imperfect glory, because it was, the video was shot on my, um, on my laptop. (laughs) So it looks, uh, you can see my face really large, and it's, uh, uh, the, but the audio is good. So you can just turn the, the screen off and listen to the audio, and it'll be fine. Um, so uh, that's a little bit about something. So you can see something that's coming in the future, coming attractions, the seven-point mind training, mind training in seven points. So that's, that's something that's coming up. The other thing that's coming up is that... Um, I'm going to be teaching, uh, again, another multi-part series. Don't know. It'll be sometime in the next 12 months 
on the 37 actions of a bodhisattva, which is another book of sayings uh, about how to practice compassionate action. Several people say to me, uh, why is it that you are not studying the Buddhist scriptures, but instead of, of studying the Buddhist sutras and scriptures, why are you studying these commentaries? And part of the reason for this is that sutras are extremely long. If you've seen them, they're very, very long, and some of them are very repetitive. Now, the reason that the scriptures are repetitive is so that they can be easily memorized. They can be easily memorized. And in fact, there are Buddhist scholars who have memorized 30 or more books of scripture or commentary. And in our tradition, we call these people kenpo, or the, one, or, or the, the wise ones, the ones who have accumulated knowledge. Uh, they have to have memorized more than 30 books and be able to be quizzed on them. I think that by comparison, uh, the, uh, the American or Western PhD is a little easier. Uh, maybe not much, because they don't have to write papers and defend them. But, um, but at any rate, it's, uh, it's quite an amazing feat for anyone to accomplish, and we're very lucky that we have many who have accomplished that. So anyway, so that's a little bit about the, uh, the coming attractions uh, for this coming year. Uh, uh, so uh, what I'll do uh, today is, um, uh, by the way, uh, help me remember, Ron, I have written out a description of today's talk, and I will uh, email it to you and to the team uh, the, right after we're done here. Uh, but I, I want to apologize in advance uh, for today's topic. It's called, A Confession is Good for the Soul. I know. You said, I thought that Buddhists didn't do that confession thing. But you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. And, uh, and Buddhists also don't teach about a soul either. So, we, so I think it's a little bit of a, of a wacky title for, uh, for a talk. But for the next uh, 20 uh, to 30 minutes, I'm going to address a specific topic uh, that has to do with the Buddhist practice of self-awareness and uh, how we can use self-awareness to become the people we want to become and avoid being the people we don't want to become. And uh, so we'll talk about the practice of mindfulness and awareness and how it is used in everyday life. So those of you who have practiced meditation will hear things in this morning's talk that are familiar to you. So, and those of you who are new to meditation, hopefully you'll hear something that will inspire you to practice meditation in the future. Uh, I'm going to start uh, with a prayer, and um, the uh, prayer I usually say is the uh, four-line prayer of taking refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha as the teacher, the Dharma as the path, and the Sangha, or community, as our community. Uh, those of you who are familiar with this prayer can chant along. I'm only going to recite it once. Uh, and those of you who are unfamiliar with the prayer, don't worry. You can, uh, you can join along in your heart and in your mind, thinking that you dedicate this session of study and practice to the benefit of all suffering beings, so that all beings are free from suffering. Sanjay <speaking in foreign language> 
Okay, thank you. Several different thoughts uh, came to me this week as I was planning what I was going to say today. And uh, a couple of them have to do with the fact that uh, I think... uh, I think one person in this room went to the Bodhisattva vow. Did you go to the Bodhisattva vow? Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, so um, uh, the, there was a, a wonderful um, program given by our parent monastery, Karma Triana Dharma Chakra, in Woodstock, New York, uh, last week, in which our 94-year-old abbot, Kempo Kartrimpache, gave uh, a teaching on the Bodhisattva vow and the Bodhisattva commitment to benefit others. Many of you are familiar with what is called in all of the world's religions the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, the Bodhisattva vow is based on that and takes it a step further. That is that you will treat others uh, a little bit better than you treat yourself. So uh, the, the vow is taken in front of a Buddha image as our witness and in front of a teacher who gives the vow. And uh, the, the person makes the vow that they will practice the six perfect virtues that cultivate love and compassion, just as the Buddhas of the past have done. And you may ask, what are those six perfect virtues? They are generosity, ethics, Patience, diligence, meditation, and wisdom. And practicing these six virtues, one does one's best to reduce one's own ego fixation, which the Buddha, in his teaching on the Four Noble Truths, which the Buddha said in his teaching, is the the cause of much of our suffering. If Uh, As uh, the modern uh, Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron once said, if something hurts so much, it's because I'm holding on to it so tightly. And so the practice of the bodhisattva is a practice of learning how to let go of selfishness. It's really difficult. It is not an easy thing to do. And in fact, when people receive the bodhisattva vow, they're actually also asked to conduct a daily practice that goes with it of self-awareness. You don't just get to go in front of a Buddha image and a teacher and say, someday I will be a person who practices generosity, someday I will be a person who practices ethics, and someday I will be a person who's patient, someday I will be this person. Uh, you do say that, and someday you will become that. But there is, there is what you might call technique to becoming patient. There's a technique to becoming generous. There's a technique to uh, becoming mindful and aware. 
And so what you are making the vow to do is to examine your stream of being every day to see how you're doing, which is really important. Uh, We don't just make an aspiration and then walk away and think that the aspiration is enough and it will take care of itself. Darn. You know, darn. It would be so nice. Now, don't get me wrong. I love aspiration. Aspiration is wonderful, and we need it. If we don't have an aspiration, we'll never go anywhere. I had an aspiration to get up and get here today, (laughs) and I made it. Even uh, anybody running in the marathon today? Yeah, okay. A lot of people are trying to get here today, but they have to go around the Columbus Marathon, which is uh, which is taking up some real estate on Broad Street. Anyway, I cheated. I got here the back way. Uh, I came from Newark, uh, and uh, when you come from Newark, you come across on the north route, uh, 161, and then you can hook into 270, 670, and you come in the back way here. I had no idea the marathon was going until I saw the street blocked off. But at any rate, people um, make this aspiration, and we make aspirations, and then we gradually follow through on those aspirations. I talked to a friend of mine who's a, a therapist, and she says that the way that people make change in their life is first by getting an idea and then talking to themselves about this idea, studying this change or this idea they want to make in themselves, studying up about it, getting information. And then they start talking to their friends saying, I am going to do this thing. And then once they've told someone, now they have somebody who they can I guess you could say lean on and use as support as they attempt to make this change. Whether the change is something um, as difficult as quitting smoking, I did it, but that took a long time. I I was a smoker in college. I don't know uh, if you have any familiarity with college, but you you do a lot of things in college, (laughs) some of which you remember. Uh, I, I remembered... Uh, yeah, becoming a smoker in college. But by the end of my senior year, I could not walk a, f- a single flight of stairs without getting winded. And I said, I think there's something wrong here. And so I quit smoking. But it took a while. But anytime we want to make any change in our life, we have to go on this path. We have an idea and make an aspiration. Then we study about it. We get an idea of how to do it. Then we talk to friends and get friends to be our supporters and helpers as we attempt to make this change. And so you could say the Bodhisattva vow, vowing to be loving, to be kind, to be patient, to be generous, to be all of those things, all of those qualities which slowly open up the, the fist of our, of our selfishness. It's a slow process, believe me. I know, because every now and then, I I stop at a stoplight, and I really want to go. I want to be the first person off the light. That is the grasping of selfishness right there. I still think I my journey, whatever my journey is, going to the drugstore, going going somewhere, is much more important than anybody else's journey. And, well, you get the idea. I did tell you the title of this talk was Confession is Good for the Soul. So so you're going to hear a few Lama confessions today. But in any case, um, 
once we become committed to the bodhisattva vow and these six perfect virtues, we have to have some method of accountability. We have to take some responsibility for our behavior. And uh, when Kempo Karza Rinpoche taught about this last week, I'm sure he let you all know uh, what, he, what he wanted you to do. And generally what is done when a person has taken this bodhisattva commitment to be loving and kind is every morning and every evening one reminds oneself of that commitment. Now, if you've got extra time, three times is better, so doing it at lunchtime too is really excellent. But a lot of the people I know don't have the capability of remembering something three times a day. The only reason I ever remember anything is because I set my, my smartphone to go off. And no, I haven't set it for that. I, I just do it morning and evening. And in the afternoon, sometimes I'm able to do it. But what he has you do at that morning and evening is he, have, he has you think about the previous few hours what were my previous few hours like? Did I... Was I mean to anybody? Was I mean to myself? Did I lie to anybody? Did I lie to myself? Was Did I act unethically with somebody? Did I think badly of somebody? Did I wish ill will on somebody? Now, I'm sure all of you are having moments of thought right now as I'm saying this. Uh, my, my top recommendation is stop watching 24-hour news channels, I'm just saying. It will prevent a lot of ill will, I'm just saying. Because people who traditionally watch 24-hour news channels will find something that will offend them or make them extremely angry within the period of time that they're watching the news. So you have to be prepared to take, um, shall we say, um, counteraction when this type of thing comes up, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Meanwhile, we look at the last few hours and we ask ourselves, how did I do? If we have done well, and we don't have too many of those thoughts of ill will or negativity or uh, lying to ourselves or others or harming ourselves or others, then we, uh, we are, our assignment is to rejoice and say, thank goodness, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I did something right. Uh, now, some people may find this to be a little self-congratulatory, and, and doesn't that increase our ego fixation? Just wait a moment. Because next, we're going to need that little moment of self-congratulation. Because next, we say, all of those things that I did that weren't so good, those things that where I harmed myself or harmed others or thought about harming others, um, all of those things, I regret. I regret them. And in fact, I regret them from the depths of my heart. And so these two counterbalance one another. It's important to rejoice and accept the good that we have done. It's important to accept the good that we have done. Otherwise, we're discriminating against a sentient being. And that sentient being is us. And we don't want to discriminate against a sentient being, that's us, who is trying their best to be a good person. So next, we think, okay, I regret those negative things from my heart. And that's where Buddhist confession comes in. Yes, we have it. Any former Catholics here? 
Okay, you got it. All right. So, uh, no Hail Marys here, but we do have we do have a, a form of confession, and this is the form it takes. But what I find interesting about Buddhist confession is that we use self-awareness to recall the previous few hours. We don't have to wait weeks for this. We just do the the previous few hours while it's still fresh. Before we've had a, before we had a chance to bury it somewhere, so we can't think of it and can't find it. So we use it just for the first few hours and the the last few hours, and we think of the good that we have done as well as the harm that we have done. We have to think of the good; it's important because we have to see that we are on a journey and we are making that journey and we are succeeding on that journey. So if anybody does this Buddhist practice of confession without recalling the good they've done, it's a little lopsided and needs to be corrected. But the other half of that, the regret, is part of uh, the Buddhist practice of confession, which has, anybody who's heard me give this talk before, knows that it has how many parts? Four, thank you. The first part, uh, the first is the power. These are called the four powers of purification or the four powers of confession. Uh, does anyone know the first one? Reliance. The first one is reliance. They all begin with the letter R. This helps. The first one is reliance. We rely on the Buddha. The Buddha is our witness. We don't need a witness, any other kind of witness. The Buddha has already achieved Buddhahood and completely and completely transcended and overcome his self-clinging. So he's the proper person for us to present our faults to. The rest of us are we're, we're works in progress. And so it's better to present our uh, happiness and our faults to the Buddha. So reliance is the first of the four. The second of these is regret. And that is calling to mind clearly what we have done and feeling regret for that which is harmful. Kempo Carter Rinpoche, in one of his teachings, quoted the Buddhist uh, text that says, what kind of regret should you have? How powerful should your regret be? It should be powerful. How powerful? Well, as powerful as you regret you would feel as if you had realized that you had just accidentally ingested something that was going to make you sick. Oh my goodness. I just ate that bad thing. And so forth. That kind of regret. The re- because that is how we reject selfishness. One thought, one action at a time. If we try to go after our self-clinging habits all at once, it's not going to work, and we'll become very disappointed. But if we can work toward slowly dissolving our selfishness, one thought, one intention at a time, it's going to be a lot easier and more manageable to do. It's the, uh, it's the, old, uh, it's the old story... A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. After regret comes remedy. The R that is remedy. Actually, the confession itself is the remedy. The fact that you're doing this is the remedy. But 
Many people also like to use traditional Buddhist confession prayers, and if you have one in your possession, you can recite one. Uh, there is a popular one known as the Confession Before the 35 Buddhas. It has to do with a story that happened around the time of the Buddha's, uh, before the Buddha's, current Buddha's lifetime. One of his past lives stories about Buddhas uh, of the past who, uh, re, who purified a wrong and then became the 35 Buddhas uh, that we call upon when we are confessing faults. This remedy helps us to recognize that everything can be changed. You see, the problem with confession is that some of us take it a little too literally and a little too seriously and we choose to hold on to, um, shall we call it a resentment? Shall we call it a grudge against ourselves for having done something wrong? We're not willing to let go of the wrongs we have done. Even if the other person in an argument forgives us, we're not willing to let go of our resentment against ourselves for having done that thing in the first place. And in my opinion... This is a form of uh, aversion, which the Buddha called one of the three mental poisons that keep us from becoming Buddhas. Clinging to dislike of ourselves for having done something is is self-defeating. And so one of the things we can do through remedy, through the practice of remedy, is to give up our clinging to the badness of ourselves. We can give that up. And we can begin to imagine a life and a self without self-resentment and self-harm. It's a way of lightening our burden, if you will. And then the fourth of these is resolution. Once we have relied upon the Buddha, regretted the wrong, remedied it to purify it, and then uh, we resolve not to repeat that negative thing. Before I go to that, I should say one more thing about, uh, about remedy. Uh, some people think that once karma is accumulated, it cannot be purified. I, I have to share with you a teaching that Kemble Carter Rinpoche gave about that. Years ago, Kemple Rinpoche said, I know a lot of people, they worry about their bad karma. They think, I have so much bad karma, there's no way I'm ever going to get purified of all this bad karma. He said, but I have good news for you. He said, there is a good thing about bad karma. The one good thing about bad karma is that it can be purified. And he said, this is true because karma is part of relative truth, and relative truth is impermanent. Everything in relative truth from this table to uh, the, the face I look in the mirror at every day. It's slowly coming apart. Everything is slowly coming apart and decaying. Why? Because it's not permanent and solid as it is. And so even the bad we have done, if we reverse it through this practice of reliance, regret, resolution, and remedy, if we go through these four steps, we actually counteract and to purify and remove that negativity. And otherwise, he said, if we don't see that as possible, then we're in some ways denying the truth of the Buddha's teaching. We're saying, well, what the Buddha said isn't true. 
it actually can be purified. We have to be able to let it go. Our small mind may not think it can be purified, and we may have to get used to the idea of being able to purify ourselves. We might have to get used to the idea, but if we can get used to it, then slowly we can benefit from that. So, anyhow, I had to, I had to say that one last thing about remedy before I went on to resolution. Um, uh, re- resolution means that we say, you know that thing that I regret? I'm going to do my best not to repeat that. Now, many people say, uh, why should I, for example, say I'm not going to get impatient again? Because it's going to happen like now. Soon I'm going to be impatient again. But Kemper Bache has also given a teaching on that. He said um, that he said that your resolution not to repeat something, he says, is like a cup that you put tea or water in. It protects what you are vowing inside it. That resolution protects your goodness. He said, yes, I know. Maybe you think you're going to get impatient and angry again, and that is like a little crack in the bottom of a cup. But the majority of the tea or water stays right in the cup because of your resolution. To not make a resolution, to not bother to make a resolution, makes as much sense as pouring tea directly on the table. Makes no sense whatsoever. In other words, there's no hope of getting better if we don't resolve. Now, I say that uh, the the topic was uh, confession is good for the soul. And it it really is because if you do this kind of practice in the morning and you do this kind of practice in the evening, you will become more self-aware. And becoming more self-aware is very important. Why? Because self-fixation is a very strong habit. We have at least had it for the number of years we have been alive. Even babies do not need to be taught the word mine. They seem to grasp the concept pretty quickly. So because we have at least had this habit of self-fixation for our lives, and if you believe in previous lives and future lives, it's been quite a long time. Back to what the Buddha called the no beginning of time, going toward the no ending of time. We've lived many, 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 many times and had this habit for many, many lifetimes. And so changing that habit is going to take a while. And so being able to think about it morning and evening is really good. Well, all of these things are still fresh in our minds. And uh, what do we do when we have finished our confession? We retake our bodhisattva vow. We retake the vow. We say, until enlightenment is reached, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, just as the Buddhas of the past have practiced the six perfect virtues and slowly, gradually become proficient, so I will engender this mind of enlightenment and practice stage by stage and as they did become proficient. And so if a person can keep up with themselves through self-awareness, change actually will happen. Self-awareness permits change to occur. If we don't practice some form of self-awareness, we're always going to be blindsided by our shortcomings. I know because people keep telling me about mine, and I'm always surprised. 
you know, do you mean, what do you mean I said that thing and hurt somebody's feelings? Oh my goodness, I didn't think of it. And what do you mean I slighted that person or I said this thing or I did this thing that was hurtful? What do you mean? I'm always being surprised because I'm always being reminded. Some of us are lucky. We get reminded all the time. We have uh, friends or loved ones who are really, you know, good at it. They're good at reminding us. But we have to be good too. And what we have to be good at is saying, yep, that's me. Yep, that's me. Everybody should be like the, the good players in basketball. You know the good players in basketball, when they foul somebody, they put their hand up. I don't know if they still do that. They still do that? They used to when I was growing up. The idea is if we put our hand up and say, yep, that was me, then we're making one step, we're going one step closer to changing that behavior. It, that behavior will change. Because we will stop liking it and stop excusing it and stop making reasons why we're justified in doing mean things to other people and so forth. Some people say that modern public discourse has gotten messy and nasty, and I think they're right. Um, it's, been, it's been a number of years, and it's just getting worse. And I think part of the reason it gets worse is that people are not self-reflective. They don't reflect on the impact of their words and their actions. And so uh, that's why I said that it's good for the person to do confession is good. It's good for us because it helps us to change. So you can either become a person who does Buddhist confession or a person who is thinking about it or aspiring to do it at some point in the future. Uh, there's a, if you want to read more, uh, there's an article on lamakathy.net, uh, uh, net uh, that's titled Confession as a Daily Buddhist Practice. It quotes Kempo Rinpoche's teachings and the teaching I just gave. And it refers to that. And so um, that is what I wanted to talk about today. But there's one more commercial I want to give, and that's for the practice of quiet sitting meditation. I, you know, one of these days we probably should have a competition for commercials for meditation, don't you think? A lot of people are, um, are learning about meditation now who never knew about it before. Interestingly enough, um, I, I met a, a businessman this week, a very successful businessman who meditates every day. And uh, I think it's really kind of cool to walk into this person's office and see a meditation gong on their table, I mean on their shelf. It's like, that's pretty darn cool. The, the idea is that people see mindfulness as a potential strengthener for change. Because how can we know what we have done until we know what's on our mind? And so the practice of quiet sitting allows us to know what's on our mind. The technique is so simple. You sit and allow your attention, which is always out here doing something, to come a little bit more inward and rest on the breath as it comes in and goes out. Just observing with your attention the breath as it comes in and goes out, and then when your attention wanders into the past or wanders into the future, you take hold of that wandering attention and you bring your attention back to the breath for a fresh start. 
and you do this over and over and over again. And what happens is, is that when you notice that distraction and you drop it, that distraction, you drop it, it loses its power over you. The power that it has over you is the power of saying, I am important, look at me. This thought that you just had or this memory that you just had, look at me, I'm important. And when you let go of it and return your attention to the breath for a fresh start in your meditation, that thought is still maybe shouting for a moment, but then it eventually disappears completely. And when it disappears, there's a relief in your mind. And doing meditation gives you this relief over and over and over again, such to the point that you can begin to notice the spaces between thoughts, which is a powerful thing. Because when you notice the space between thoughts and you realize that that space is okay and nothing bad will happen to you in that space between thoughts, then you're not as quick to grab the next one, sort of compulsively grab the next one. This is the... This is the the sad secret of the smartphone. You have to watch the 60 Minutes report about it. It's grabbing our attention and making us want things. So just, you know, 60 Minutes. It was a good, it was a good piece. Anyway. So because we're, we have so many things working against us, having attention, being present, and so forth, we owe ourselves at least five minutes of meditation every day. <laughs> So whatever method you use to get that five minutes, whether it's coming home immediately from work and instead of lying down immediately, which is what I usually do, just sit for a few minutes and be quiet and then lie down. Or go ahead and lie down, but then when you get up, just don't jump into the next thing you're going to do. Take a moment just to sit and observe your breath. Because that self-reflection that self-awareness is going to help you make changes you want to make in your life. Because you'll see your thoughts and begin to change them one at a time. So that is, um, that's, I, I talked a little longer than 30 minutes, sorry. But we do have, uh, we have about 20 minutes uh, for discussion. And I am open to discuss just about anything. I can discuss this topic or something else. Now we do have a microphone if you can get over there. If you can't, that's okay. You can yeah, okay, good. Yeah, because we record these and put them... By the way, we have podcasts. Does anybody know that? We have a yeah. podcast. We, you, can, you can check us out, columbusktc.org, and our, our podcast is on there. Hi. Hi, and thank you for the lecture. Thank you. So um, the first thing, reliance, um, mm-hmm. is something where I, I trip up. Yeah. And uh, there's a story about how, mm-hmm. you know, you're always, uh, as a person, you try to control the play. You try and get the actors to do what they do, right. the dancers and the music. Yeah, yeah. And if only they would do it, then you'd be happy, is what you think. And, of course, that it doesn't work. And then you're yeah. meaner or you're nicer. And, and you're thinking, oh, well, I'm being nice. So right. that, should, that should make everything go well. And with the Reliance, I think it's, there's a new director in town. And it's, yeah. it's Scott. Right. And so you are just an actor in the play. And, right. and, but I, you know, mm-hmm. there's a justification of 
either, well, I'm being nice, but really I have an ulterior motive, which is to have everybody do what I want to do. Exactly. And also, even just, um, you know, when you feel bad and you beat yourself up, sometimes that debilitates you and you don't realize that it's not about you. It's, it's, there's a new director in town, but yeah. I, I wonder if you could talk a little more about yeah. the justifications that I, I, I really, yeah, I really, really appreciate you bringing this up and you've actually expressed it really well. Um, because, um, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, we start our, um, process of change and our process of self-awareness with a, a practice called refuge. So I think that what you're saying just feeds right into that. Excuse me. <clears throat> it feeds right into that because you're right. I think um, we, we place our trust and take refuge in something outside of ourselves a lot. When we're small, we take refuge in our families. And then when we get older, we take refuge in our new families and maybe job, money, name, fame, all that stuff. But really what it comes down to is that we, we think that something external to us is going to make us happy and that we put our faith and trust in that. And that's why we become, I guess you could say, little gods in our own little universe. Uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the great uh, Tibetan Buddhist teacher of the 20th century, called it the, the kingdom of ego, the kingdom of ego fixation. And that we're the, we're the sort of monarchs in this kingdom of ego. And we do try to make everybody do what we want. And we try to arrange everything the way we like. I have a lot of friends in 12-step recovery who talk about this. And, uh, and it really is uh, a bit of a reliance problem. It, whenever we find that we're taking refuge in somebody else's opinion, it's, um, it's uh, my friends in 12-step would call it a first-step problem. We're putting our trust in the wrong things. And I think that uh, this reliance, placing our reliance in something that is beyond ourself, and uh, my friends in 12-step call it a a power greater than ourselves, whether that power is a being uh, like God or um, a a philosophy like the 12 steps itself or the fellowship or uh, I've had people tell me their higher power is a mountain or a rock. Um, but the idea is that we have this confidence that there is something beyond uh, us that can restore us to sanity. That's the 12-step way of looking at it. And I think that, um, that in the Buddhist tradition, the idea of taking refuge in the Buddha, who's the person who actually accomplished awakening, actually was able to reverse their ego fixation during their lifetime, while they were alive, and taught other people how to do it. That's the second thing you take refuge in is the Buddha's teaching, his Dharma. So you take refuge first in the Buddha, who's the teacher, the Dharma, which is the path, and then the community of practitioners who are your companions or your guides in the case of teachers who possess enlightened qualities. So um, in that particular manner, refuge, taking refuge and building that reliance is something we do every day in the Buddhist tradition. You start and end your day with a refuge, with taking refuge. But you're right. Uh, what I tell people is, is that when they're working on refuge and reliance, that if they find that they're taking refuge in somebody else's opinion or in something outside of themselves, it's a refuge problem and they need to kind of come back to themselves. Is, is, that, is that what you had in mind? Did you have something you wanted to add? Or? I, yeah, okay. 
I really appreciate you bringing that up because it's so hard to rely on something because we're so used to being in charge, you know. So, you know, it's so funny. Um, frequently, I talk about self-fixation, and a lot of people don't exactly know what I'm talking about until I use the phrase, I'm different from those other people. I don't know if you've ever said this to yourself. I am not like those other people. Those other people whose behavior I find objectionable. Whether they're on the other side of politics from you, or the other side of lifestyle from you, or the other side of whatever from you. I'm not like those people. Well, what you're really saying is that, you're you're not just saying I'm different, you're saying I'm a little better, because otherwise how could you judge that? How could you judge if you're not looking at them that way. So the idea is that we inadvertently put ourselves in that superior position all the time. Inadvertently, not even thinking about it. And that's why, again, morning and evening self-reflection is so important, because otherwise we won't know. And you're right, we do tend to hold it against ourselves when we do wrong. But we have to have both sides of the confession. The first side, where we rejoice in the good that we have done, and then in the second, where we regret the wrongs that we have done. And we, we strive to do better. Uh, Kempo Kartarimbache said, if you find that you're giving yourself a hard time for something you've done, think about all of the people in the world who make mistakes. And you think about all of them. All of those people who make mistakes, besides you, you're not the only one. Other people make mistakes too. And then he said, imagine that you ask them to hand you all of their mistakes. Here, I'll take that for you. Here, I'll take that for you. Now, all of us are free from mistakes. May all of us, you make the aspiration, may all of us be free from mistakes. So it's like that. More stuff to talk about. Yeah, we have a, you can just line up if you want to. Yeah, because we have time for like three. Mm -hmm. I wanted to share a um, practice that sort of will lead you into this confession practice mm-hmm. and it's the um, practice from St. Ignatius so every evening oh, you yeah. think about the best thing that happened that day thank God for it mm-hmm. think about the worst thing that happened that day and ask God's help in that so in, in so it, you do it in the evening but then throughout the day it, it develops mindfulness because you're noticing you're not taking for granted our first world um advantages right privilege you're uh, you're rejoice you're rejoicing and being grateful for all your blessings and mm-hmm. you're also noticing that they're you're not just oblivious to all the harmful things you're doing mm-hmm. you're noticing them mm-hmm. and and in buddhist terms you're thinking this is workable mm-hmm. it's um there's resources within me and outside of me that can help me with these problems and you don't have to like confess that the worst thing that happened that was your fault it's like, oh, this really dysfunctional relationship happened, and you may not know. It's very complex to what's going right. on, but you're right. recognizing that it's right. a problem, mm-hmm. and make then you're mindful throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And just to do that every evening mm-hmm. um, activates the frontal lobes of your brain because you're doing decision making mm-hmm. about what is the best and the worst thing that happened during the day. Mm-hmm. So physiologically, it's supporting right. your confession practice. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Call that the two-handed prayer because you're weighing and measuring. Yeah. Best worst. I appreciate that. Yeah, the former Catholic in me rejoices um, at hearing St. Ignatius' name. I mean, it really is. It's true. The Ignatian exercises are very, very uh, profound and powerful. And it is because of that. Because 
you do when you pay attention. See, it's all about paying attention. Um, and then the habit of paying attention. And so I appreciate that. Thank you. I have two things. Uh, one, I'd like to add to the announcements that were made earlier, and that is that today is the third Sunday of the month, and we're having our Sangha lunch at Ob Restaurant on Main Street in Bexley, a couple of blocks mm-hmm. of Drexel Theater. Mm-hmm. The other thing is when you were going through the four R's, yes. I didn't remember them, so I was trying to think of what they might be before you said them. And one that came was in my mind the whole time that you didn't say, I'm going to bring it up, is called Rejoice. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure if it's, if it's appropriate or not, but I kind of applaud myself when I do something, when I find that I've made some progress in something. You know, I go, <laughs> right. wow, this stuff's working, you know. I, yeah. I think I, I'm seeing a change. I'm seeing yeah. that, that, that right. uh, something good has happened in my life as a mm-hmm. result. And so... Yeah. I was calling it rejoicing, so I don't know if that's a uh, Thank you. It's a, it's a, you can add a fifth one. It's okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But put it at the front end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In my, description of, uh, in my description of the four powers of confession, those are the four powers, and the, the, those are not going to change. But, um, but the practice, as we do it, we can add that fifth thing at the beginning. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. I thank you very much for the talk. And um, I do this at the end of my workday, except they do it a little bit differently. And I was kind of curious whether I should modify it. Mm -hmm. Um, I run through my workday, like my morning and everything, except of saying, like, I did this. I tend to reflect and say there is anger or Mm -hmm. there is happiness or Mm -hmm. there is frustration Mm -hmm. um, to kind of hinder the judgment piece Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Should I tweak that to be more like that I did this and this is good or this is bad. Like I'm kind of getting, I'm trying to figure that yeah. detail. It, your, your mileage may vary, I think is kind of how I like to say these things because um, you make a, a very good point, which is that in, uh, in some people's minds, taking responsibility uh, for something means that they did something wrong and they feel bad about themselves for doing something that was harmful. But my point is that, uh, that we actually do have to take responsibility for who we are and what we do. However, there are degrees of that. And if it is easier for you, because if your tendency is to fall into a hole, if, if you do that, then saying there is anger, there is, and so that's better, the better way to go. It's not the, I'm, I'm going to make a joke now and say, it's not official Buddhist teaching, but it works. So I'm, uh, so I'm perfectly fine with you continuing to do that. And um, uh, I have to give, it, I have to give the, the teaching sort of the traditional Buddhist way, but I do think that there is room for this kind of, uh, there is room for this kind of, um, of adjustment uh, in situations where it's called for. Because if you need that, then you've got to have it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I'm, glad, I'm just glad you're doing it. I think it's awesome, actually. That people would stop in the middle of their work day and actually say, "Hey, how'd I do?" So it's like, "Way to go!" Does, has it has it helped? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. There's uh, there's time for one more. Is there one more out there? Yeah, we got one more. Okay. We got two more. This is good. Yeah, go. Yeah, both. You, you, there's time for both of you. Yeah. Yeah, I know our our mic stand. <laughs> 
thank you for your teaching today. Yeah. It was very relevant for me anyway, personally. And I guess I have a question that uh, relates to Western psychology and how that meets up with the Buddhist teaching. Sure. Um, there are some people who never had refuge in their family or refuge right. in a community right. before. And so it's very foreign to them when they come into, when they right. take refuge and come into a community. Mm-hmm. And so it's also difficult for them to um, to stop clinging to that resentment to self, as you discussed. I understand. So what does, from a Buddhist perspective, mm-hmm. how... What, is there a, a remedy for that? Stop the yeah, let me let me see if I understand. Let me see if I understand. Um, I I really appreciate you bringing this up. To be honest, because I think that there are so many people in this world who, as young children, had their their trust completely thrown out the window, and we have to remember that, and we have to keep that in mind when we're talking to anybody. You know, because adverse childhood experiences, are, as they're being called now, ACE, you know, it's, um, it's a way of scoring a person's uh, likelihood of developing um, uh, depression and other types of things. So I think that the, the prevalence of it, we need to recognize. And so because of that, then trusting uh, somebody like the Buddha or trusting... uh, The Buddha is just an idea for most people because they've never experienced somebody who they can trust implicitly like that. And I could make a a little bit of a joke and say an imaginary person is probably easier to trust than a real one. And for many of us, the Buddha is like an imaginary friend at the beginning. Someone who we ideal, we idealize, and we hope we could become like someday. And I think, to me, that's the key piece, is for people to recognize that the qualities that we saw in the Buddha are qualities that we ourselves possess, but we slowly will uncover. Does that make sense? And and I, for one, I, for one, do not myself want to ask anyone to... Um, proclaim trust in the Buddha or the Dharma or the Sangha before they're ready to do so. And, uh, and I think that that's, um, that that's also important. But I think I'm missing one piece of your question. Well, I guess I started out with that as a springboard and then kind of jumped to, you had mentioned the clinging to resentment of self. Mm-hmm. Because if people don't trust, then they're right. going to Right. Um, and I, I guess the foundation of all this is trauma. Yeah. Because that was, would be what was experienced in childhood right. if you couldn't trust anyone. Yeah. But um, is there a remedy to, a I wonder. remedy to um, clinging to resentment? You know, I, I wonder about that. We, we should talk more. Okay. Uh, about. I'm, I'm going to noodle around it. I'm not sure I have a solid answer for this, but let me noodle around it for a minute. I sort of think that what we've heard so far about gratitude and rejoicing, okay. gratitude for what one is and has, and, and, um, and a, a rejoicing in the good that one has done, is a foundation upon which to build and then also to show 
the, um, the repetitiveness of resentment against oneself as being like an investment that one continues to make but is actually baseless. There is no point in that investment. There, and frequently what I will tell people who have, who have internalized this is I will say, there was someone in your life who criticized you and you have now internalized them and they're still speaking to you but with your voice. And so what we have to do is we have to find a way to disconnect the speaker system so that they're not speaking to you anymore. And so that's why I'm wondering. I'm, again, I don't have the answer, but I'm thinking it has something to do with this gratitude and this rejoicing in the good that we have done, plus having confidence in our own capability to do good and to be good. And there's a, one other thing that I think is interesting. There's a practice in uh, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition called Tonglen, or sending and receiving. And in that practice, you imagine as you breathe out, you give goodness to another person. And as you breathe in, you remove all of their... Um, their failings and their pain and suffering. You could feasibly do this practice of Tonglen for yourself as a way of removing that which is complex about that kind of habit. Removing that habit and then giving on the outbreath, giving a new habit of gratitude and acceptance. Removing the problem, giving gratitude and acceptance, and then seeing how that is in other people's lives. Uh, those are just some ideas off the top of my head, but I'm very interested in continuing to converse about this. Thank you so much. It's just a place to start from. Okay, yeah. And then this will be the last question. Thank you, Mama Kathy. Yeah, thank you. I'm trying to overcome ego claim by coming up to this microphone today. I know, so I know. You. Sometimes when I come up to the microphone, I have to because I, I'm so I'm such a you know like a forward person and I'm so it's this it's kind of extrovert performance artist or whatever. <laughs> I have to like say to myself as I walk up to the microphone, even if I make an absolute fool of myself, may it be a benefit to someone. And that that being of benefit to others is probably also a, a key piece in what the previous question was asking. That idea of being beneficial to others, even if it's just aspirational, that's interesting to me. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh huh. Thank you for all of the teaching. Yeah, yeah. Podcast. Really appreciate it and all of the great questions. Yeah. It's been wonderful. Um, I really just wanted to offer um, from the teaching last weekend, Kumbo Carter Boonfishes, that he said really um, struck home with me that even killing a bug can send you to the lower realms. Yeah. Reincarnation, and so it really sent an urgency. Can you speak louder? Oh, sure. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah you I have to come right up speak. to the microphone. Okay. But um, Kempo Carter Rinpoche had mentioned that even just the action of killing a bug in, in our life can is enough to send us to the lower realms. Mm-hmm. And so I I realized the importance of practicing yeah. as much as I can and the urgency sure. with that. And so I wanted to offer that gift and um, mm-hmm. yeah. say thank you. That's oh, really yeah, thank you. Yeah, no. Yeah, I think being aware, I think it is really true that uh, when we become self-aware, uh, there's a moment that we have when we become self-aware. I call it sort of, I could call it the oh no moment. Like, oh no, you mean I've been like that? And oh no, you mean I've done that? And then we freak out a little bit, 
That's a technical term. Um, but, you, you know, even if we do have the oh no moment and freak out a little bit, there's probably some benefit to a small amount of freak out. It's like we need to take a homeopathic dose of freak out so that we don't fail to take all harm seriously. You know what I'm saying? You know, that we don't say, oh, that's just a small harm. That doesn't matter. You know, that bug had it coming, squash. You know, you know, it's all about intention, by the way. It's intentional killing, not just the stuff you do accidentally, but um, where you you apply hatred and then squash something. Um, and I think that we have to have this balance, isn't it? Uh, this balance of of being able to say uh, harm is not is not something I want to be or do, and at the same time being uh, enough, having an, a light enough touch that we don't cause harm to ourselves. That's really the key piece here. And, and I say that all of Buddhism is about balance and that the self-awareness of quiet sitting meditation allows us to slowly, gradually build this balance. We don't have it from the beginning. We're a little bit unbalanced. I'm talking about myself, of course. Um, and, and that we you know, sort of over-apply or under-apply our remedies. And so it, it will take time. But what, the other thing that was quoted to me that Kemper Rinpoche said during last week's Bodhisattva vow teaching was at the very end he said, um, no fooling, you are now bodhisattvas, all of you. You're now, because we're bodhisattvas in training, we should have the stickers on our back, you know. Student driver, student bodhisattva, around the back. But he said, now you are bodhisattvas, so you have to start acting like it. And, and I think that taking that responsibility can feel heavy until you realize that you're the person every day who is going to be your own best friend and is going to help you keep that vow by reflecting on your life and your day and by being the kind and loving parent we've always wanted to have, that we actually can be that person. And, uh, and I just think that's the coolest darn thing ever that even if we didn't have those trustworthy, kind, and wonderful people in our lives, that we can become that person now. So I just thank you for, and thanks to all. Uh, and thanks, by the way, to Tim uh, for reminding us that, uh, that there will be a Sangha lunch at AAB, AAB India, uh, the, at the buffet. I think they have a buffet today uh, on Main Street in Bexley. Uh, it's my old stomping grounds, um, so I'm definitely going to show up. So anyway, all right. Um, let's uh, sit quietly for a moment and um, do a very Buddhist thing and dedicate the goodness of this session. We dedicate the goodness of this session to all sentient beings. May all beings everywhere be free of their burdens, be free of suffering, and come to happiness. And then may they come to Buddhahood and awakening. And from that place of awakening, may they emanate in all directions and benefit sentient beings endlessly. We dedicate the goodness with this thought in mind. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you.